This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Screen Show. Jason DeRosso here. In this episode, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome one of the legends of Australian film. Born in Chinchilla in Queensland to Greek migrant parents, he left school and became a doctor, but soon ended up following his real passion, making movies. He's one of the few filmmakers who has spawned their own big-budget action franchise, the Mad Max films. I'm talking, of course, about George Miller, a filmmaker of great talent and refined sensibilities with a very wide range. His films can be grotesque and violent, but just as frequently sublime and enigmatic. From the Mad Max films to the animation Happy Feet to The Witches of Eastwick, he's been a savvy and always surprising operator in global film. And this week, a new movie gives us further proof of his versatility and talent. I do have a question. What does one do with three wishes? You'll see. 3,000 Years of Longing is a supernatural romance starring Tilda Swinton as a woman who thinks she knows all there is to know about stories. She studied them professionally for decades and believes that stories are what make sense of the world. But she is so knowledgeable that her view on life, including her view on her own life, has become dispassionate and a bit too comfortable. That's until she arrives in Istanbul for a storytelling academic conference and brings home a misshapen blue and white striped bottle from a bazaar, from which emerges a djinn or genie. This creature grants her three wishes, but being the knowledgeable storytelling expert that she is, she refuses, claiming that all stories about wishes are cautionary tales. But does she really not desire anything? Idris Elba plays the entity from the bottle, and the film really hinges on his performance. The djinn is, of course, immortal, and over the centuries has accumulated much knowledge and power, but he is still at the mercy of us mere mortals for his freedom. And in the hotel room in Istanbul, where he emerges back into the world, he begins to tell Alethea, that's Swinton's character, all about himself. He tells her his story. And his story involves three different love affairs with different women, beginning with the Queen of Sheba. And it unfolds in chapters as a kind of fairy tale for adults. There's magic, there's court intrigue, there's sex and violence, politics and love. Miller's direction of his two principal actors skillfully marries Swinton's slightly doer Englishness with Elba's rueful but magnetic solemnity. And all the while, as they discuss storytelling and the djinn's experiences over thousands of years, you're wondering, is this a chess game? And if so, who is winning here? What is this tussle about? When the film exits the hotel to illustrate the djinn's stories, we're plunged into a vibrant storybook world of teeming crowds and stone castles, raging oceans, sultans, slaves, and moments where fate pivots on an unlikely coincidence and a peripheral character. There is a quaintness to 3,000 Years of Longing that may not be to everyone's taste, but it is, we are warned in voiceover during one of the film's opening scenes, told like a fairy tale because otherwise we wouldn't believe it. And it's this sense of sweetness, it's childlike playfulness that I think is reflected so evocatively in veteran Australian cinematographer John Seale's sprightly camera work, which ducks and weaves. And it's also reflected in the wonderful production design that trades on the sumptuous, the sensual and the bizarre. 
all of this colour and movement and richness works as a way to get us into this story about midlife crisis and midlife regeneration, a focus that echoes in Elba's immortal Jin, who has no midlife, of course, but, as the British actor so palpably conveys, can also suffer from a malaise, just like the rest of us, and perhaps suffer even more than us. 3,000 Years of Longing is a film I enjoyed a lot, and George Miller is coming up. You mock me. Three wishes, perfectly simple and theoretically safe. I was imprisoned by Solomon precisely because I cried out my heart's desire. Only by granting you yours may I earn my release. Yes, well, I appreciate the symmetry, but the thing is this. I cannot for the life of me summon up one eligible wish. And you're asking me for three... Is there any life in you? Are you even alive? You know, in some cultures, absence of desire means enlightenment. Then you are a pious fool. If I'm content, why tempt fate? And you're a coward. Don't goad me. There is no human, no angel, no djinn that wouldn't grasp at the chance to fulfill their deepest longings, and I am saddled with the one who claims to want nothing at all. Alethea Bini, you are a liar. You know I am beginning to wish we'd never met. No, Don't say that! George Miller, welcome to The Screen Show. Thanks, thanks, Jason. Thank you. Now, this is a project I know you've been wanting to get up for a long time, uh, and for a couple of decades, I think. Tell me about the moment when the stars aligned for the project and, and you finally managed to get it made. Well, having read the story and bought the rights to it in the late 90s, the notion was that we were to write a screenplay and when we were happy with it, we would then try to get the film made. And that happened. Uh, there was a screenplay we were happy with. There was um, there was a gap in our preparations on other films we wanted to make. And so we went to a studio to finance the film and we went to cast virtually at the same time. And then it all fell into place very quickly. Uh, Tilda read the screenplay, Idris read the screenplay. Within uh, a couple of days they were on and the studio was on and we were able to uh, go ahead and make the movie. What are they like to to direct Idris and Tilda? I mean, um, it must have been an advantage that they sort of get back to you so quickly and they sort of love the script. I mean, what was it that they, first of all, responded to in the script, do you think? Perhaps starting with Idris because it's a very interesting role for him and I think he does it ever so well. Well, he... um... You know, he's a very, very interesting actor and a filmmaker. In the same way, I think that it, Tilda is. Um, I think they really responded to what the film was trying to do. I think they responded to the characters. Um, Idris, Idris is a very, I think like all artists, is a very, very curious person, always exploring. Um, he's undaunted by trying new things. I mean, uh, as he said that's been a characteristic of his life ever since he, he was a young kid. You know, he's, he's tried his hand at directing. Um, so they came aboard and they wanted to work with each other uh, from the get-go and they were happy to try to try to bring this film about. I, again, you always want to work with those who I call um, filmmaking actors, those whose job it is to collaborate with everybody with every department to get the film made, not just to play their roles, but to do what was necessary. And both brought 
that kind of savvy and wisdom to their work. They're both very experienced and they're and, and incredibly helpful with, with suggestions all the way through the, the process of making the film. How, how did the uh, character of the gin, this genie in a bottle, how did, how did that become moulded in your collaboration with the actor Idris Elba? I'm, I'm curious about this because, I mean, it's, it's such an iconic role really and been done many times before and, and so I, I suppose the challenge is to want to you know, breathe fresh life into it, which I think you have done, but, but it's such an interesting role. Tell me about the collaboration you had together. Well, the first thing, uh, that this is not a conventional uh, genie story. It's uh, written, having been written by A.S. Byatt, who's a serious scholar of stories. She's not only a literary figure, but she's also someone who's a really serious student of, of story through the ages and basically asked the question how and why we tell stories. And already in the novella that she wrote, The Gin in the Nightingale's Eye, she was looking at it not from a, a kind of fantasy point of view, but really as if it was real. She asked me when I first met her, she said, why did you choose this story? She'd written a, a number of uh, other fairy tales, but she wanted to know why well, this story. And I said, well, there's something about it. It's very authentic. And she said, ah, that's because everything in the story is true except for the gin. So she, she was the scholar that went to Istanbul to a conference and observed what was happening there and got to understand she loves the, the um, Thousand and One Nights, which were Europeanized into the Arabian Nights and so on. And she basically drew on that. And so I realized we couldn't do the kind of traditional, let's say, Disney uh, version of gins. There have been wonderful versions of that. It's, uh, but to do, if you like, a grown-up fairy tale and treating everything a little bit more authentic. So, for instance, the gin in this world we, 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 we point out is, uh, is basically electromagnetic and is manifest as human, basically harnessing one of the four forces of, of, of the universe, the four known forces along with gravity and the nuclear forces. We, we took it from that basic notion and developed it, and I think we exposit that in the, in, in the movie. Um, the djinn himself uh, was a mixture of cultures. I Idris, for instance, um, decided that he would have a, lang a language, which we call Jinbish, that came out of him. He just has a facility for, like some people do, to do that. He, he he understood the character. He understood that he was a a, a creature of emotion and desire, and uh, always getting into trouble because of that, and and uh, coming against. A creature of reason with children. So all of that thing went into the mix. What I loved about them is they, they, they both really, really were able to adjust their process to each other's process and to the process uh, that we un undertook in the in the movie. Was COVID a difficult obstacle for you to overcome in terms of well, COVID restrictions and so forth? I mean, when when they're coming out from Europe, did they need to go through a process of isolation? I'm not sure when it was when the pre-production or production uh, happened, by, but I assume it was in a period under um, where we had various COVID restrictions. Yes, COVID had a big influence on the film. Um, we were about to shoot 
and we were we are actually going to shoot some of the scenes in London and some of them in modern day Istanbul. Uh, the rest was to be shot in Sydney. COVID hit. We we already had rehearsals with Idris and Tilga in London. We'd already cast a lot of wonderful Turkish actors and had rehearsals there. COVID hit. The film had to be delayed eight months. Uh, when we regrouped, everybody had to quarantine for two weeks in a hotel, even the actors who came from Melbourne or from Queensland or from other states had to spend two weeks in isolation. That turned out to be helpful in one way in that to help people through the uh, being isolated, we made sure that every day they worked with one of us on the screenplay, on the on the performance, and so on. And in fact, Idris and Tilda were together, and um, they were in, in adjoining apartments, and would often rehearse from one balcony to the next. Anyway, we eventually got the film made. Very strict COVID protocols. Uh, everyone wearing masks, and so on. And we had no one had been affected by COVID all the way through the movie. Tell me about, I mean, I, I start watching this film, I didn't know much about it, and within minutes it's cast that spell over me and your filmmaking in particular. You don't see a director often move the camera with the kind of sophistication that you and John Seale do in this film. You don't see filmmakers put together sequences with the kind of sophistication that, that you're able to do. And there's something about, I think, the mix of a decent budget and filmmakers who know what they're doing with images and sound. That is just such a pleasure for a critic like me. And I'm just wondering about that notion of, I mean, one one camera movement sticks in my head and it's early in the film and it's in the uh, framing story where Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba are sort of discussing their relationship and, and you know, um, discussing the nature of story and it all happens in an Istanbul hotel room. And there's a moment in the morning where the camera just follows Tilda around the hotel room and it's done with such a precision. We often think of Steadicam or something as being, you know, a bit on the fly or whatever, but this is done with such a precision and a dynamism. I'm just wondering, as a director, how do you approach blocking? How do you approach, um, where do the ideas for the movement and the cinematic nature of what you're um, staging, where, where does that all come from in you? Is it intuitive? Do you sit down and mathematically try and work out what's supposed to happen? How does it happen? Well, ultimately everything is intuitive, but the intuition is always formed by the rigour of thinking something out. For the most part, this film is a conversation that happens over about 70 minutes in in real time in a hotel room. There's a couple of chairs, there's a bed, there's a foyer, and it's a relatively small space. So... You re- every movement, every gesture of the camera, uh, uh, every bit of blocking from the actors has to have some some significance. So you have to calibrate that through the movie. If you don't, if it's more randomised or just capturing the moment without regard to what came before and what happens after, then it's going to get pretty kind of messy, stop and start and so on. So we had to be pretty rigorous about that. Um, it's something that I've always been aware of. I'm one of those directors who believe there's only one correct or perfect place for the camera at any given moment. It's part of the syntax of cinema that's evolved. It's a it's a new, relatively new language, only about 125 years old, 
but it's something we learn almost immediately that we, as infants, often before we can learn to read, uh, we, we learn to read cinema. It is a new language. It's not something, you know, that we are told that when people first saw a big close-up of someone turning their head, they read that as a disembodied giant head. So they screamed at the screen. Nowadays, we read it as a close-up and so on. So the film language is always evolving and camera movement is part of it. Yeah, I'm very grateful to, to work with the likes of Johnny Seal who really understand that, have, have a great wisdom about telling stories. And without going on too long, it's a thing I learned from making animations that depending on the point of view and where the camera is at any moment, you can change your story. The same performance by the actor and the same the same environment, the same lighting can change quite significantly depending on where and, and what the camera is doing. You know, this film is an examination of storytelling that concerns itself in a sense with the overlapping between Western and Middle Eastern traditions in particular. It's no accident that it's framed by this encounter between a woman and a gin in, in an Istanbul hotel room. But I was wondering, as for you as a Greek Australian, I wonder if in some way this film was perhaps your way of reflecting on your personal roots, culturally perhaps, did you feel a personal attachment in, in particularly to this story and the, the particular cultural reference points? Well, not, not consciously, except um, uh, the thing, well, first of all, my mother was born in Turkey, in a, a, a Greek family, uh, just over a century ago. During the Armenian genocide, they left, eventually she came, as an infant to Australia in you know in the in the, in the early 20th century, so that had there was some resonance there. But the the one thing I I noticed um, that when I was you know with my family in Greece on the island where my father came from was just how storytelling was so significant that the histories, family histories, and all the almost fables that, that were told. I think it happens in every culture, but it's more likely to happen in older uh, cultures. Um, and probably we have the most vital and extraordinary example of that in the First Nations culture of Australia, where arguably a lot of the narratives go back at least 40,000 years and some would argue, you know, 75,000 years. And it's a way that we... We, we seem to, as humans, negotiate uh, life and its meaning and our existence. It's, it explains everything around us in a way that is, is useful. And we, we, we talk about that in the story. So I think you have a point that perhaps because of at least some of that heritage that might, might have, I might have been more, more acutely aware to the potential of a story like this. You're listening to The Screen Show. My name's Jason DeRosso and it is my absolute pleasure to be in conversation with the Australian filmmaker George Miller, whose new film is 3,000 Years of Longing, starring Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. George, watching this film, um, Fellini's Eight and a Half popped into my mind, of all things, ah. because Tilda Swinton's character is this narratologist, I think is the term, and she knows so much about story. She's an academic who studies story, but has this has become rather detached and, and has quite a rational relationship to stories, I think, as you would if they're 
it's what you do every day. And I'd almost say it's, she has an almost joyless relationship to story and this film is about her rediscovering that joy. But it did make me think of the kind of um, filmmaker in crisis moment that's depicted in a film like Eight and a Half and certainly maybe a crisis in a novelist's life, that crisis you have as a storyteller where perhaps you've lost that joy. And, and well, I was wondering, is there a, is there a danger in, in dealing with story all the time that you kind of lose that joy? And is there a semi-autobiographical element in this film, do you think? Are, are you in some way representing, if not yourself, a kind of fear of what you might become in Tilda Swinton's character, you know, that fear of being joyless? Well, in, in all this time I've known this story, it hadn't occurred to me, but I think there's some accuracy in what you're saying. Certainly I identified very much with the character I certainly identified with the notion of, of storytelling in the way that she deals with in the way that the gin and she communicate only by story. And she makes the comment that stories uh, to gin uh, are, are like breast of them. So that's something I have. You know, when I first started making films, um, some people said to me, George, film is an art. You should give yourself over to the intuition more you tend to overthink things. And it worried me because I thought, wait a minute, am I being too analytical and so on? And then I realized that's impossible because you're driven by intuition. In it, we as humans, almost in everything we do, that what, what makes the intuition muscular is actually the preparation and the process of being analytical and really really probing every every aspect of what you're doing. And I found that in the best artists, certainly in the best actors, the, the actors that I really, really have enjoyed working with the most and sit back and watch as we're making the film and, and, and almost in wonder are those that go through a process of working a role, approaching it from every single angle, not necessarily performing, doing talking work, walking work. You know, that, that, that concern that you can overthink something uh, left me fairly quickly because it's almost impossible to uh, override the intuition. Basically, most of what we do is ultimately intuitive. Um, but going back to it being autobiographical, as Alethea says, you know, I find, I find feelings through stories. and. I think in many ways we do, but ultimately uh, she realises, I think, that we, what we all realise, it's through your own experience measured against the cultural information that you've picked up in your life as you go through and you measuring your own experience against that is where life is more fully lived, I think, if that makes any sense. And I think that's what happens to, to Alethea. It's only when she becomes part of her own story that she feels more complete as, as a person. I'm interested in you co-writing this adaptation with Augusta Gore, your daughter, because it's a very um, female-focused story in a way or set of stories. In, when the djinn starts telling his stories to Tilda Swinton's character, we go back through, well, essentially there are three main stories of three women that he falls in love with really and this is the wonderful tension of the immortal who falls in love with the mortal and, and, you know, it's very classic and he embodies that inner unease and 
and turmoil so well, I think, in a very wonderful performance. But um, what do these three women represent? What do you think unifies them as entities within this broader narrative tapestry that you've woven? Well, um, first, first of all, I think A.S. Byatt, when she wrote it in the 90s, uh, if you read the novella, she, she was very much about the place of women in, in narrative in, in, throughout time. She, I mean, she, she's very broad in her scope. And that's one thing that resonated with me. I, I, I grew up in a family with, with three brothers. Uh, I went to all-male schools all my life. I went to medical school at a time when only 30% of the students were female. And uh, so I was, I was very much in a male culture. And then, but I did have uh, a really magnificent mother. And then when I had a daughter as a firstborn, and and with my partner now, I, I in in my life shifted, uh, I guess, to try into understanding the, the the world a little bit more. And I, I think that was even reflected in Fury Road. Which, which, uh, and 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 I think that's probably why I was a- attracted to A.S. Byatt's uh, worldview. And I think the stories are more powerful when you're dealing with stories about love, uh, particularly at kind of across time, across three thousand years, uh, and you have a djinn who is driven by. By, by his emotions and so on. I just think it was uh, it naturally fell into that. Um, mm. The reason why Gussie, uh, we, I, we, Gussie and I began writing it together was um, I had worked with Nick Enright uh, many years before. We had such a wonderful time, and we were looking towards working working on something when he and and I said, "Would you like to work on this?" And as it was, he ended up. Um, with a with a melanoma and his time was limited, and he happens to be Gussie's um, godfather. And he said to me, "You know, if I can't write it, why don't you ask Gussie? Because she's got all the things that would co- will complement your uh, y- y- you know the way you see the word." And he was right. Um, he, y- you know, uh, both both of them are actors. Nick was one of those people who, you know, he's, he's, he's a multitasker. He was a director, writer, playwright, teacher, and so on. So he identified that in Gussie, and, I, and that proved to be the case. The other thing about it was we could write it over a long period of time. There was no deadline, as it were. So I was making other films. She was doing other things. We'd come back to it. We'd give it a go. We'd put it aside. And that, that gave us, you know, that, that gave us the time to explore the thing. I hope that answers your question. It does, it does. I began this interview asking you about why the stars aligned, um, you know, for this project. Uh, It was more of a production question, but I'm now interested in a thematic question maybe to end this interview, and that is that do you you think that this story about storytelling now comes at a particularly interesting and important time for us globally, given what we've been through in the last two years. I guess there's been the pandemic where many of us have, you know, spent a lot of time at home watching stories on screens or reading books. So storytelling has been something of a consolation. Uh, On the other hand, we're in an era where I think there's a particular focus on political figures in particular, uh, 
demagogues and the way that they tell stories to influence large swathes of people. And you can insert whichever politician or world leader that you want. Oh, and I have to mention, you mentioned it in the film as well. There's a brief moment where you sort of talk, this reference made to the claim that superheroes are the new sort of Greek gods. And I'm very sceptical about that. I hear that around the traps. I'm very sceptical. So all of those things in mind, how do you think this film lands in the culture at the moment where I think storytelling is something we're interested in analysing again? I, I don't think it's new, the analysis of story, of course, but we stories are very potent because, A, they're accessible, and as many people say or have said, the quickest way to truth is story, as opposed to, you know, we're in a world that's overwhelmed by data. Data has to be organised into knowledge, and that knowledge has to be organised in some form of wisdom. It has to be orchestrated in some way. So you're more likely to get something more resonant, something more poetic through story. It's always been the case. I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's no accident that um, ever since people have recorded stories, people have told stories as if the characters were animals. Uh, you, you know, I've been responsible for that sort of behaviour as well. Sure. You know, talking pigs, dancing penguins and so on. Because they're allegorical and through allegory, you invite the 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 audience, the beholder of the story, to interpret it according to their worldview. However, I believe that short stories should be labelled with with warnings that they are indeed health hazards. If you tell the wrong narrative, you can end up following uh, cults and demagogues. If you you can push people's biases one way or or another. So they're not something that you can tell casually and just with a free, if you like, artistic spirit. You have to be aware of the responsibilities within the stories, particularly if you're telling stories like the ones I'm drawn to, which in fact are quite kinetic and, and, and like the Mad Max films, are, are violent. They, they, and, and, uh, and corporeal and, and, as well, I think. They're very corporeal. Your, your films have a lot of bodily stuff in them. We feel them viscerally yeah. and we see lots of body shapes and things happen to bodies and and it's, there's beauty and there's grotesque. So that's also very, that connects you as a viewer, I think. Yes. So I think the stories which tend to endure are those that in which there's more to them than meets the eye, that, that, that there's a lot of, as I like to say, a lot of iceberg under the tip. Um, you don't know which ones are going to res resonate as storytellers. You put them out there, and they're they the the in some way the zeitgeist responds or not. Um, but there's always something inside those stories. There's something always in those stories that resonate with the time, and I think that's why, you know, uh, that's why I dare say I still have a, a joy in the process as you. It, unlike Alethea, I, I, I still somehow am drawn by a, an intense curiosity as to, you know, how to tell stories and more importantly, why it is we tell them. 
Well, maybe in fact, if 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 I did mention the semi autobiographical possibility before, maybe maybe this is that semi autobiographical um, element is in the gin and not actually in Alethea. <laughs> um, uh, I think it's both. I, I have to say, I think it's both the two parts. <laughs> I take on board everything you said about stories and all that, but there are moments, there are moments in your film, in your films where. Sometimes I think the, some beautiful moments in your films are extra narrative. They're just a beautiful shot. There's something very abstract. Even the shot of the baggage trolley at the floor level in the airport scene early on in this film, I thought this is the sort of shot that a film student might try and pull off and it'd look clunky and would sit awkwardly in a sequence. And you managed to pull it off. It's just, you know, and these aren't, they don't have a narrative value necessarily, but they want, you know, they're wonderful all the same. Well, I appreciate that. Um, it's um, uh, who, who knows? It just seems it, 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 it seems that it would slot in at the time that it, like a piece of joinery that the, the pieces fit. I think you know, film is a most is a mosaic art. It's all, or it's almost like a almost like a tapestry. You're weaving threads through, and where a certain stitches at any moment is really part of the orchestration of the whole thing. So I guess I guess that's what you keep trying to do. That's what you're thinking about. You know, I'm going to go on the set tomorrow and already I'm thinking about how this particular piece of the puzzle fits in with, it, with the entirety. You're always thinking of that. So so I hope I hope I'm getting the hang of it by now. You absolutely are. Thank you, George Miller. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Jason. Thank you. Filmmaker George Miller. 3,000 Years of Longing is in cinemas this week. You're on The Screen Show with me, Jason DeRosso. music to a show I really like, Only Murders in the Building, a comedy about connection told through the stories of multi-generational neighbours, two boomers and a millennial, who live in the same affluent apartment block on the Upper West Side in New York City. This motley trio are played by Steve Martin, Martin Short and Selena Gomez, and they bond over a shared passion for true crime podcasts. In season one, we saw them start their very own podcast about the investigation into the suspicious death of one of their neighbours. And in the second season, they themselves become suspects in the murder of another resident in the building. Well, no spoilers because the season two finale recently aired on Disney+. Plus. But I thought it was a great time to reintroduce you to John Hoffman, who co-created the show along with Steve Martin and also serves as writer and showrunner. John was my guest as the series launched in 2021 and provided some great behind-the-scenes insights. So let's hear some of that conversation again. First, though, here's a clip. This doesn't make sense. Where do we start? At the very beginning. I got in the elevator with these two weirdos. Then Tim got in the elevator. Approximately 12 minutes from now, I will be murdered. 
Tim Kono's death has been ruled a homicide, and apparently one of you jerk-offs did it. I can't stop thinking about this. Neither can I. We should do our own true crime podcast. We're going to go down there and look around for clues. You want to come? Do I want to break into a dead guy's apartment and go through all his shit? Sounds like an afternoon. Right now, the only thing that matters is that there's a killer on the loose in our building. Oh, that is a very good line. Badly delivered, but a good line. I think we're on to something big here. And these are... Candid photos I took of our neighbors. Why are they all selfies? So I don't draw suspicion. John Hoffman, welcome to The Screen Show. Thanks. You know, this show taps into a kind of urban loneliness, but it's also about uh, an unexpected solidarity, perhaps, between three characters from two different generations who normally get depicted or spoken about in terms of being at loggerheads, the millennials and the boomers. And I thought that was really interesting, and it's kind of a, a really sweet note to this delightful show. Tell me about what inspired that. I think a few things. Um, I was definitely looking to bridge that generational gap a bit. Comedy is a good bridge always, but I think ultimately what you pointed out at the beginning, that loneliness and the idea that I thought of true crime podcasting as a potential interesting conduit for achieving community. And that's what I seem to be hearing when I would talk to people loving true crime. Uh, and I thought, this is the strangest combination of things all at once. And I just felt that in New York, the other part of it was New York and the isolation that can happen in the city with all these people. And then the generational divide, though, for me is personal. You know, I found great solidarity with women over 70 since I was about 10 years old. And uh, I was, you know, spent a lot of time with my grandmother, who's from New York, very Ruth Gordon type personality. So I think I just felt like an old soul in a certain way. And I had so much to learn and I enjoyed the humor. And that's what I feel when I see Mabel with these two legends. Well, she's an amazing piece of casting. I mean, I'm a great fan of Martin Short and Steve Martin. But Selena Gomez, I have to confess, I hadn't really paid much attention to before this. And I'm looking at her performance here and thinking she is like an old soul in a young body. And partly that is really great for the comic tone that she needs as well, because Steve and Martin are kind of both a little flamboyant at times, just technically in, in what they're delivering. And she's this great, to use an old fashioned sexist, gender-specific term, a straight man. You know what I mean? She's like this straight <laughs> yeah. girl. And she is so good. She, I didn't expect her to deliver so many things in such a dry way. Did she need a lot of coaching to do this? Because I wasn't aware that she had this as part of her, you know, significant range of talents, but I didn't, I wasn't aware that she had this, this particular talent. It's so interesting. I knew of her from the show she was on for young audiences, the, the Wizards of Waverly Place, but just a little bit. But I caught it every now and then uh, growing up, uh, not growing up, but I caught it every now and then like on TV while, while flap, flipping through. And I actually was on the Disney Channel as an actor many years ago. So I would find Playing the Mad Hatter, I believe. Yeah. Yes, it's a, it's, I have a very strange resume. But in this case, there was a kinship I felt with her immediately just having gone through that process. It's a very good training ground for a young actor. So I felt good about that she was so experienced at such a young age. But also you could recognize that dry, shrewd sort of tone and that 
eye she has. She's a very clever girl. The other thing that I was not surprised by, but, you know, this incredible social media following she has. And I always wonder, like, what is it? She's, you know, drop dead, gorgeous, beautiful girl. But the thing about her I find so disarming is she's completely authentic and straight up. She doesn't tell a lie and very warm. But then the surprise is the knowing wit and the way in which she can land a dry bon mot in between these guys and just level it out immediately. It was the big surprise for me of the trio. It was everything to the show. But when we saw it happening in our first Zoom table read, the three squares working together all at once, that was electric. And we all called each other afterwards going, oh, my God, she came to play and she's going to work. It's, it, it's just magic. Yeah, because, I mean, there are the expected and quite delightful sort of tensions between boomers and millennials. So that dryness is great, especially when sort of Steve Martin's character is saying something really inappropriate or completely out of date. Or And the egos of these men really get in the way. But there's an empathy there too, which I think strikes me as being born of this common experience of being on the outer. And I think perhaps her character, Mabel, feels this more acutely. The guys, in a way, aren't aware that they're being treated like they're over the hill by society. They still think they've got a, a shot at this. So it's interesting. This is a show very much about millennials and boomers as generations that are kind of shut out of the mainstream of the economy and work. And and I think that's where their loneliness comes from a little bit as well. And that's also the source of their solidarity. Does that ring true to you? You're making me think of it in a way I hadn't thought of it before based on my experience with the show. And because the show uh, was, I was invited into the show by Dan Fogelman and, and his developing partner, uh, producer Jess Rosenthal, and to meet Steve Martin, who they had met with, who had this idea, and they needed someone to be a showrunner and, and to write with Steve and all of that. So I was invited in for that. And of course, when I first heard of this show, I thought Steve Martin and Martin Short, my God, let's go. Let's go crazy. Let's make a fantastic, funny, great show. And then when we thought of who is that third person, we'd been working with Steve and Marty for a while. And we talked a gamut of potential third people uh, in that show. And when we landed on Selena Gomez and that age difference and everything else, but also the sort of power she holds as a, a force in culture, I felt this almost disarming shift. And this is just, this is the first time I've ever voiced this, but I, but I understood it too. I was like, oh, we have to readjust ourselves to the show. Everybody does. Steve and Marty do. Like, oh, wait a minute. I thought this was a Steve and Marty show. And now it's like, oh, we have a balancing act here that feels we have to grow into it and understand what it's going to be. And, and that actually services as everything seemed to do on this show, the behind the scenes preparations of everything Selena never having met Steve and Marty. Marty and Steve introducing themselves on the first day of shooting. Selena being nervous, the growing sort of blossoming friendship that we watched off screen as we were making this show during a very challenging time was married to the narrative that we were building. And it all seamlessly kind of is palpably under the surface between all three of them as they're growing to understand how do we make sense together. I find that 
again, just one of those lucky coincidences. I mean, because this show would have been completely different if the Selena Gomez character had been someone of my generation, someone like Drew Barrymore or something. There would have been more of this sort of father-daughter, uncle-daughter kind of tension, and they would have been more at each other's throats. But there's something about skipping that generation which makes it a little bit more believable that there would be some friendly ribbing and some sort of, you know, a little bit of tension, but also that solidarity there too somehow. I think somehow solidarity between generations can skip a generation somehow. There's less competition. Yeah, exactly. It's like anyone who has a challenging relationship to their father and then suddenly you go away, you grow up, you have a life, and then you go back and you see your your father now being a grandfather and they're ultimately the loveliest human being and you're wondering what happened to the dad you grew up with and and that is sort of the same kind of general idea yeah it's sort of they learn in a different way because there's less onus when you're a generation away i think on being responsible for your behavior let's talk through how this this happens you get brought on as a showrunner to kind of whip this thing into shape and develop it What's your relationship like? Because you're listed as obviously being a co-creator with Steve Martin. What's that relationship like? I mean, and what was it like from the beginning? Were you getting together even with COVID in a room and, you know, just, you know, was there a to and fro of ideas? How did it work? Uh, well, I, I can only tell you, I, I was wildly intimidated by the thought of working with him and he completely erased that like in five minutes just lovely, genuine, embracing, open, generous, very funny, very smart barometer of what he thought might work, what might not work all the way through. He had the original idea of three strangers in this apartment building. We're all invested in true crime podcasts and they happen upon this murder and then embark on investigating and pod, uh, investigating it. And then I brought podcasting sort of suggestion that they make their own podcast as they investigate. Uh, and then he just took that in and then we went off and running. I flew to New York and very nervously uh, went up and had a meeting with him in New York. And we started work on laying out a pilot. And I shared my thoughts on what the pilot layout could be. And it just took off from there. And then we pitched together at Hulu. So we had talked about the whole series, pitched it, and then dove in. I dove in with a writer's room and a brilliant staff. And then we would present things to Steve, present things to Steve, Marty, and Selena, check in with them on Zoom, which is how the writer's room was working, of course, during the pandemic. And so there was constant back and forth. Yeah. So, um, at, some, so at certain stages of the process, would you have the whole writer's room Steve, Selena and Martin all on the same set of tiles, all on the same mosaic on your on your computer screen. Yeah, it was pretty it was pretty star-studded Zoom and we had the writers as well, so everybody was up and running. I have a couple of great pictures of that. And you know, I think also it was just a time when everyone was so happy to be connecting and so there it was a very alive and kicking Zoom, but it was also somehow a show about connection. That's how it was pitched to Hulu. Yeah. Well, I mean, that theme is evident even in the beautiful opening titles. We've got an animated rendering of this beautiful block of apartments, this apartment block, sorry, in uh, in the Upper West Side in, in New York. And the font is, I think it's literally the font from the New Yorker. Am I right? 
close. I was going to ask about that. Right, right. So you had to make a little modification so as not to need to sort of get through a few copyright There was, I was surprised myself. We had a sort of, I was like, can we legally? And they were like, no, no, that is a legal font separate from. And Uh I was like, okay. But I love love the inspiration. You know, we were there. I'm a fan of Nora Ephron. The idea of the New Yorker, uh, you know, she wrote a brilliant piece about the Apthorpe which was one of the models uh, of the great apartment buildings in New York for our Arconia. And uh, she wrote a piece that was so rich and about living in one of these apartment buildings. And it was one of the inspirations. And then Steve was working with Harry Bliss uh, on a cartoon book. And so all of it seemed to fit in and and then just creating that sort of uh, sophisticated, I hope, tone of our show and also it just seemed when we got together with this brilliant company, Elastic, that did our title sequence, Jess Rosenthal, our, my producing partner on this, uh, had said to me early on, I'd really like to do a great title sequence. And I'm like, ah, that's a dream. You always want to have like a brilliant title. So he said, we should start now on that because this was a year out. And I was like, he said, because usually it's saved for last. But let's really think about what that is. And so we really worked with Elastic in, in shaping that. And then Sid Kosla's score, uh, that the theme for this show, uh, it all, it's just too much. Oh, it's, absolutely. It's really- I, I mean, you've, you, you've hit on another aspect of the show, which I love so much. And people kind of think, oh, it's just the packaging or whatever. But it's, it's well, in terms of the opening credits, certainly the score is never just the packaging. But it's much more than that here. And, and that metaphor of, of your opening sequence is all about, you know, we see the different characters through their individual windows looking into their apartments. So they are sort of separate. You also get the sense that, the title sequence foreshadows that this building will be such a such an important part of it. But I do want to talk about the score on this wonderful show, Only Murders in the Building. That's what I'm talking about. By the way, listener, you're listening to the screen show with me, Jason DeRosso, and I'm speaking to the co-creator of Only Murders in the Building, John Hoffman, a wonderful series about murder and murder podcasts. This score is superb. And my favorite cue is the minimalist kind of cue you've got where it's just this tinkling piano. I think there may be three chords and they're slightly arpeggiated and they're really slow together. And the tone of that is both suspenseful, but also, oh, it's just gorgeous. There's something about it that's, I mean, and the whole show's like this. It's about murder and a grisly one at that, maybe more than one murder, you know, and yet there's a sweetness to it. I don't mean that in a saccharine way. There's also a sweetness to it too that you've got. But this score, tell me about how and what you wanted from that score. What was the brief? The brief was exactly as you described it. And I knew we needed something to match that description. And I thought, oh, that's going to be hard. I don't know how to begin to describe that and then let a composer sort of find that balance. And Siddhartha Kozla, who had been working with Dan Fogelman on This Is Us, and we were introduced and I immediately knew, oh, he's he's a real artist. He really, no question. And the way he was speaking about the show, you know, Dan said, you're going to talk for hours with Sid happily. And I'm like, oh, good. I have someone I can talk to. And we just dove in and, and Sid is really something. But as he was trying some things out, he actually found this piece that he had been working on. And he wasn't really thinking of it as the theme, but it was maybe a starting point. So he said, I, don't, I hesitate to share this because it seems almost finished, but it's not. And then he played it. And I was, well, that's, 
that's the damn theme. What are you talking? Because of that mix, it, it has this buoyancy and yet this mystery underneath and, and a pathos. You know, what you pointed out there, you know, the variations he found on that theme to play throughout and create these completely different feelings, but still keep it at this level where there was a twinkle in it and it and something emotional. That one you refer to, he played for me a couple of months in after deciding that the theme was there. And ooh, I just, it, you know, he would do little riffs like that. And it was sort of a dance of no, no, okay, stop. And then it was right there. So it, it, I, I, it was a wonderful process. John Hoffman, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you about it and getting all these insights on what's the funniest thing I've seen this year, Only Murders in the Building. Thank you very much. Jason, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for the time. An excerpt of my conversation with John Hoffman, co-creator along with Steve Martin of Only Murders in the Building, season one and two streaming on Disney+. And if you'd like to hear about how the look of the show came about, make sure you check out Blueprint for Living, where they recently spoke to the production designer, Kurt Beach. And since we ended that conversation talking about the wonderful music in the show composed by Siddhartha Kozler, I can't resist playing some more as we end this episode. You've been listening to The Screen Show. Please follow us on the ABC Listen app, where you can also find previous episodes of The Screen Show and more great content from ABCRN. I'm Jason DeRosso. Our sound engineer was Russell Stapleton and producer was Sarah Corbett. Thanks for listening. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.